This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back, very excited to introduce a new mini-series here on Jews You Should Know, featuring experts in the areas of Jewish spirituality and mindfulness. These are disciplines that have exploded in popularity over the last number of years, and the Jewish world has a lot to say about them and features some really fascinating characters doing incredible work in these arenas in all different subcategories therein. People who are experts in positive psychology, in mindfulness itself, the various movements that aim to help center people and connect them with their inner essence, and of course, with the ultimate essence above. We begin our series with Yaakov Lehman, a fascinating individual who lives just outside of Jerusalem in the Judean hills on Moshav Beit Meir where he runs a company called Wisdom Tribe, which offers a variety of services within its ecosystem. And Yaakov will explain all about that, as well as his incredibly compelling life story, which, as he says, involves the Mexican Mafia, Mick Jagger, and Highway 405 in Los Angeles, among many other unusual elements. And so we proceed to our conversation with Wisdom Tribe founder, Yaakov Lehman. We are here with Yaakov Lehman, the founder of Wisdom Tribe, and uh, we'll find out exactly what that means very shortly. But how are you, Yaakov? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Amazing. And you're uh, coming to us from the beautiful hills right outside Jerusalem, Beit Meir, I believe. Incredible, huh? It's amazing. I live in Beit Meir, and it's a five-minute commute through what's called the Forest of the Holy Ones, Yar HaKadoshim, to our small little treehouse office overlooking the Judean forest, and uh, life is good here in the Holy Land. What can I say? Unbelievable. Now, were you in Beit Meir uh, when they had the great fire there a little, a little bit ago? Yeah, I was, and I'd actually been for years trying to make the New York Times. I have the New York Times correspondence here in Israel, and I'm constantly doing events with uh, bringing tech moguls here and, and cool, innovative new projects. And I've never been able to get the attention of the New York Times. But uh, of course, you know, this, this fire came through at 2 a.m., evacuate out with my family, get the knock on the door, grab strollers, children, passports, and just you know, make a book for it. And uh, we, were, we were actually trapped in our moshav for uh, our small village for about 30, 40 minutes. And then finally, when the firefighters cleared a path, we drove through this like smoke-laden one small pathway through. I grabbed my phone, took a shot of it, um, and ended up this uh, New York Times reporter picked it up. And uh, I think like uh, a few million people ended up seeing this epic uh, <laughs> escape into the, into the smoke. So yeah, thank goodness our forest has regrown. And uh, no human damage uh, on the count. I read an article about uh, an artist who had his entire, um, his entire portfolio destroyed in that tragedy. And that was, you know, thankfully, no. That's my, that's my Havrusa, Yeram Renan. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So thankfully, no human, you know, physical damage, but sounded like a pretty extensive uh, financial and uh, 
you know, and just creative hit. So it is. And the, there is a statement uh, or at least the concept that, you know, God only sends challenges to those who can handle it. And I'll tell you, I was telling this guy the morning this fire happened Thursday, I said, Yoram, you are a man of Malchut. You, you sit on your Meshef, your, your land of, uh, on your Moshav. He's got like a, you know, a few acres there. You have so much faith and you just, you just loving your land and your space. And I was telling him this morning and, and this tragedy happened. And really, I can't imagine uh, the other artists I know or anybody I know really being able to handle 40 years of creative work going up in flames. But this guy, Yoram, the next day and, and on just trudging along. There was even a documentary team from Philadelphia who came to capture the difficulty of what it's like to lose an entire life work. And, and they came after three days, they were upset. They told his wife, we, we can't find the tension. We can't find the story. We can't find him getting depressed and then coming through. He's just been solid the whole way through. So wow. it's really an incredible uh, story of resiliency. Anybody should check out uh, Yoram Renan arising from the ashes, his new uh, portfolio after the fire. That's really cool. So anyway, Yaakov, I assume you did not grow up on a hilltop outside Jerusalem, um, as idyllic as that may be. Where did you grow up and, and what was your background? So uh, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, I was raised an ultra-Orthodox Arizona Wildcat fan, uh, <laughs> making us mortal enemies of the Maryland Terps, among others. Oh, uh, I remember seeing a few Final Fours that came down to the end with the Wildcats and the, the Terps. But uh, yeah, I had actually never met... Uh, an Orthodox Jew until I was 19. That's not 100% true. Got to give credit to Chabad in Venice, Italy, and in uh, Budapest, Hungary, for the first time I'd ever experienced the fill-in Englishly translated phylacteries in my entire life. I was bar mitzvah conservative, but the 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 mitzvah fill-in never made its way into my uh, my front view mirror uh, until uh, we were traveling Europe and encountered some Chabad emissaries. But yeah, it was only uh, 19 years old when I started my connection tapping into to Jewish wow. wisdom in a real way. Unbelievable. So did you, um, obviously, from, you know, people can't see you on this, but if they could, they would see someone who looks quite a bit more affiliated. So what was your journey like from a Jewish perspective? Um, was it something that you, you know, encountered in college? Was it something you were exploring? Were you kind of a seeker, a searcher? What was your, uh, what was your story? Wow, I don't know how much time we have on this podcast. It's I'll try to as much as you want. Doesn't mean people. Oh will man, this is a ju- this is this is a this is a juicy uh, this is a juicy dramatic uh, whole go down here. I will yeah. say about Jewish identity. Perhaps some of the listeners will resonate with this. But I went to public school in Tucson, and I went to this thing called Hebrew school. Right, Tuesdays, Thursdays, Sundays, and for some reason during school, I was like a goody goody two shoe teacher's pet. I was on student council. I was elected president of the whole school when I was 10 years old. I raised a million pennies for charity on the news. I was like this goody-goody kid uh, in public school. And I'd show up at Hebrew school from like the hours of like 3.30 till 6. And I just, my, my inner rebel just like came out in full force in Hebrew school. And we were kicked out of our first uh, reform temple. <laughs> I moved to a uh, temple anti Israel. It was conservative. But in Tucson, you know, the difference between reform and conservative was not so stark. Uh, and I just, this was like where I got my start in troublemaking, really. So Hebrew school, I can attribute it to uh, getting a start in teeny, in deviance, which uh, would end up being a theme of my high school years. Uh, really got to give it up to my Hebrew school teachers for uh, engendering that part of my spirit to come out. You ever think about going back and giving, you know, a little mea culpa? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe I should do that. Or uh, or maybe not. They They would certainly be surprised to see me here now in, in the hills of, hills of uh, Judea. Uh, but I, I had an MTV-themed bar mitzvah when I was 13, 
And uh, I told my parents like, great, that's it, done. They're like, with everything? I'm like, yeah, yeah, with everything. And they're like, all right, that works out for us. We don't have to take you to Hebrew school anymore. Great, no, no youth group, no BBYO, no this, no that. So, uh, so I cut my ties with, uh, with Judaism when I was 13. I'd actually lost my faith in God about, uh, about four years earlier at the age of eight during a Sweet 16 basketball uh, tournament <laughs> between the Arizona Wildcats and the Kansas Jayhawks. And uh, <laughs> so it wasn't, there wasn't much left at the time I was 13. Do you remember and, any, uh, of the, any of the players on that Arizona team? Oh yeah, that was uh, that was ninety. That was no, that would have been ninety four. That was like uh, it was before Miles Simon. Are we talking about uh, Jason Dickerson? Uh, yeah, great, a great team. Lost in Sweet Sixteen, and my family again, ultra orthodox Hasidic Arizona Wildcat fans. Like, like when the when you know the Wildcats made the, the Final Four, we were there in Indianapolis, and, and we traveled. Uh, I've been to like three or four Final Fours. We made our way around. So this was a really a big hit in, in my faith of uh, seeing that God could uh, not respond to my prayer for Salim Stoudemire to drain a three-pointer with uh, 12 uh, I seconds left. Stoudemire. You know, it's, um, Maryland tried to hire, almost hired away, Sean Miller, the, the Wildcats current oh. coach. And uh, right. this is before they hired Mark Turgeon. And they, uh, they couldn't get him, apparently. They couldn't close the deal. And uh, actually, Mark Turgeon was a point guard for Kansas back in the day so you have both of those oh who was uh, on they, that kansas team i remembered for a long old. time was, i mean it's probably danny manning and uh that's an old school kansas team in the 80s i guess so. i think a little postman we're talking like 94 we'd have to go we have to go back to the playbook but what i can say is my parents got lucky um and that uh you know i told my dad once i said dad i hate hebrew school and he sat me down very sternly he said son let me tell you something about our jewish tradition he said I hated Hebrew school. My brothers hate Hebrew school. You hate Hebrew school. Your kids are Hebrew school. The door of the door. Hallelujah. So that was, that was my, that was my Masora, my tradition of. I hate it. Hate Damn it. You're going to hate it too. You know? Yeah. Right. So the other, the other tradition, as I mentioned, ultra Orthodox basketball players, but my, my, my brother continued on in the illustrious tradition. Now he is the head of basketball operations at the Phoenix Suns. No way. And was recently this past year appointed as actually general manager of the Suns uh, G League team, the Northern Arizona Suns. So 28-year-old no basketball executive, general manager, and he just got back from Vegas, the whole uh, right, the summer league. The combine tournament. Yeah. Yes. So he's in, he's in, he's in it big. He, he, made, he made the mishpacha proud. And then the other, the other kid went off the derrick, went out, out, of, out of bounds, and uh, became a <laughs> rabbi in Israel. <laughs> so that, that's crazy. Your brother, did he, um, did, did, does he get you free tickets? I mean, what, what are the perks with that? Yeah, yeah, it hooks up. We got a lot of swag. I got my NBA socks sometimes on Shabbat. I got my Hasidic hat and Becca shirt and my long black coat, and I rocked some of the black NBA socks. That's a, that's a way of holding it down. And, yeah, great, great tickets to, uh, great tickets to, to any Suns events and, and the wider basketball community. And I hope my brother and I, I work a lot in mindfulness and, and corporate training, and certainly yeah. uh, the NBA and, and professional sports in general has really embraced these practices so I really think my brother and I are going to meet up uh, in, in where spirituality or emotional intelligence, leadership, uh, soft skills that, that I'm really working in and the more kind of quote unquote spiritual side will meet the uh, hard skills of the NBA, uh, either that or China, <laughs> where uh, the NBA is blowing up like nothing. And, and I ended up studying Mandarin for five years and speaking Chinese, writing to a master's thesis in the, the intersection of Jews and China. So, wow. so we'll... We'll meet up down the road, me and my bro. They have a pretty good. They have a pretty good team. Uh, the Suns. They've got Devin Booker, and they. I think they just drafted DeAndre Ayton. He was like the, the first or second. They did. Team. Yeah. So that's yeah, it's cool. cool. My my brother's in all the war rooms with every draft, and he's he's actually really close with Devin Booker. 
and uh, sent, he, was, he was there at the three-point. He was like the one Suns representative there at the three-point contest at the All-Star game when he won, and he sent me some cool pictures of them receiving the trophy, and it's, it's a pretty cool life he's living. That's awesome. I, th- I think we're going to have to get off the phone with you and start interviewing him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is supposed to be Lewis Lehman, not Yako Lehman. He's- Wait a second. <laughs> anyway, so what, what, did ha- what was your journey, uh, I guess, when you got to college or beyond or, uh, or traveling? To make, or, to, yeah. to make things very, very condensed, I was brought to Judaism by a combination of the Mexican Mafia, Mick Jagger, and the wrong turn on Highway 405 in, uh, in Los Angeles. You know? That makes sense. Uh, those, are, those are three factors that generally uh, seem to conflate. Uh, how, how did they, particularly in your case, uh, come together? The noxious combinates like the perfect storm, right? Uh, the Mexican mafia is creeping up on uh, Mick Jagger and somehow the 405 always feeding people's journeys. Um, yeah, sure. In my case, accelerating it. Uh, so it went back to uh, when I was uh, 13, I, I threw away the religion or religion wasn't a big part, but at least the Jewish part. And, you know, 13 is the time of the bar mitzvah. Uh, so somebody, you know, you got to find your, uh, your calling. And it's not just the Jewish tradition that has this becoming of uh, age rites of pass, rites of passage, you know, native Americans, uh, Latin American culture, there's a quinceanera. So everybody's got to have their, you know, coming to terms with puberty and becoming, becoming a man or becoming a woman. So the bar mitzvah MTV themed, you know, Ice sculptures, it, it didn't really serve that in a deep sense. But uh, becoming a teenage deviant, now I went all in. I took what I learned from Hebrew school and I applied it to my entire life. Uh, I had a Rebbe. Uh, he wasn't Jewish. His name was Big Bad Brendan. <laughs> and my friend who uh, I grew up with, this was like the bad kid in school, you know, already from the age of, you know, 11. And he got me into the wild, wacky world of, of teenage deviants, causing trouble, trouble with my school, trouble with... Uh, um, even the police at an early age, drinking at parties. And, and this became kind of my MO, my, my entire high school career without going into details was, uh, was really, uh, uh, you know, a, a talented kid. I think I could say I was, I was, I was, I was smart. I, I did good in school. I loved going to class. I loved learning. My teachers generally liked me, but uh, I, was, I, was, I was pretty, uh, pretty hazy. Let's just leave it at that the entire time. And, uh, and I really kind of seized my, if you can spiritual my calling in, in the world of uh, just causing trouble and uh, you know, doing, doing those kind of things. Uh, let's, let's just without, you know, let's fast forward five years. I graduated. Thankfully I, I was suspended the last 10 days of college for a senior trip or last 10 days of high school for a senior trip to Disneyland. They went horribly wrong <laughs> without going into details. My second 10 day suspension, uh, my senior year. So, uh, you know, almost got expelled out of the school district, lots of drama, Finally, I'm in college in Santa Barbara. I'd already been kicked out of my dorms. Uh, now it's the second year I'm getting my act together. UCSB? I'm living in a quiet, UCSB, went out there, uh, studied Mandarin, uh, was actually now starting to get into Eastern religion, uh, Buddhism, various forms of yoga, meditation, uh, everything but Judaism. You know, Sufi Islam was on the menu. I remember reading a lot of Hafiz and Rufi and, going, and, and, and Rumi and going to various Sufi, uh, Sufi circle gatherings, but Judaism was certainly not there uh, until, uh, as luck would have it, my Rebbe from Arizona calls me, and this is Big Bad Brendan, who did not graduate high school, uh, who dropped out in order to pursue the fantastic vocation of working for the Mexican mafia. He was selling drugs, uh, you know, guys, his daily attire to work was a bulletproof vest with two Colt 45 pistols with green laser scopes on them. I'll never forget when he 
got in my car and started pointing his lasers around in, in windows as we're driving by at night during a neighborhood. It was very, very scary, dude. And uh, he gets, I get a call from him. Lo and behold, uh, the career vocation of drug dealing for the Mexican mafia has its ups and downs, and he has hit it down. You know, lost all of his tens of thousands of dollars. Now he's got a hit out on his life from a monetary altercation with some of the drug dealers in combination with his dating the aunt of one of the drug dealers who was a 44-year-old Mexican lady named Yaya. <laughs> so, so between the Yaya and uh, the Yayo or whatever was going on there, it was not a pretty picture. And basically he had to flee town. He calls me up, his Jewish friend who had said anti-Semitic things to no less than two months earlier, calling me a few dirty names for a Jew. Uh, he calls me up, says, I got no friends left in the world. Can you take me in? And uh, lo and behold, I said, sure, Brendan, you know, come out. He spends, somebody buys him a bus ticket out of town. He spends three days snoring for the $42.50 for the bus ticket to get to Santa Barbara. Uh, he calls me. It's midnight. He spent three days in the bus station. Now it's midnight. You know, I've got a final exam the next morning, three hours, Chinese, intermediate Mandarin Chinese, 8 a.m. final exam. He calls me at midnight, pick me up, you know. So I pick this guy up. I ask him if he wants to get clean. He gives me this whole inspiring story. Yeah, I'm going to stop. I'm going to be good. It's going to get better. I'm going to get a job. Right. Two months later, none of that happens. He's living on my couch still, suckling my money and food, causing all sorts of antics. Uh, but no antic would be like the one I, I was not prepared for one Tuesday. I believe it was 2005. I walk into my house and my friend Brendan's on the couch. He jumps up and he goes, Jake, Jake, you won't believe what happened to me today. You can't believe this. And just, just judging by his track record, I, I like wanted to like tiptoe out of the house, like toss him a smoke grenade and then like <laughs> take off to Cancun for a few weeks. But I stuck around. And I said, okay, Brendan, what happened today? Like, come on. He says, you won't believe this. He said, I was walking through a field to a bus stop and I, and I met this rabbi. You know, this is like the classic bar joke, a rabbi meets a crackhead in a field, right? <laughs> but not a bar joke, the story of my life. Um, the story is, is that it was Tubishvat, and Rabbi Benzion Klatsko and Rabbi Yaakov Fleschel are sitting planting trees in a field outside <laughs> of uh, UC Santa Barbara on Tubishvat. They see this big dude, skinhead, broad shoulders walking by. They say, hey, maybe this guy's dug a few holes in his time. <laughs> maybe he can give us a hand with the shovel. Um, bad mafia joke, but, uh, in all, in all earnestness, they, they asked this guy not looking like he's Jewish at all and said, Hey, would you like to help us uh, plant some trees? And he says, sure. I'm not Jewish. My only friend in the world is Jake and he's Jewish. Lo and behold, my first connection to, uh, you know, Orthodox Judaism. So, uh, uh, that was the, with a, a lot of stories, uh, being cut out for brevity's sake. That is the, the way I ended up getting a free trip to Israel, uh, that summer to go study at uh, Ishitora, where I promptly departed from to go uh, harvest Japanese eggplants on a permaculture farm and then went to Egypt. Who does it really? Boys I mean, that, do, that's, right? that's pretty standard, yeah. That's <laughs> so cliche. You could have said, Yaakov, did you have to be so cliche? Did you have to, the first five minutes of landing Ishitora, did you have to leave to go drink coffee in the Muslim uh, market to prove that you're a, like, it was so cliche. I'm such a cliche guy, but that's what I did. I went, I left to go drink uh, Arab coffee in the, the Muslim shook as my first order of business in yeshiva. And then I left two days later to go harvest Japanese eggplants. And then I left a week later to go to Egypt for two weeks. So that was, uh, that was my time in Israel. <laughs> so obviously eventually you did, uh, I guess, return to that 
environment or to some environment of Jewish learning um, that inspired you and, and connected you? Only, only thanks to the Rolling Stones and Mick Jagger. Um, so I was at a Rolling Stones concert with my dad, who who is a lawyer by day, Rastafarian by night. Huh. And my, my dad represents a, a famous reggae artist named the Toots and the Maytals. For those who are reggae fans out there, uh, Pressure Drop, 5446. Uh, they tour they with the Stones. They open up for the Stones. Uh, I've been on tour with them in Scandinavia. This particular tour was in Anaheim. And I drove down uh, with my dad to the Stones concert. And my dad leans over to me and says, randomly, can you believe Mick Jagger? You know, as he's prancing down, brown sugar. Like, he leans over and says, can you believe this guy Jagger went to the London School of Economics? And as fate would have it, it triggered something that I'd forgotten two months earlier. A representative from the European Union had come to give a talk to my global studies class and said there was a scholarship to come study in London. And I said, that is not interesting. Who cares about London? I'd been to 50 countries. Uh, Israel was probably my 50th. I'd been to some 48 or whatever before Israel. I was not interested in Anglo-speaking places, Australia, England, boring, you know, I was studying Chinese. My whole trajectory was China. I was aiming for a double major in Chinese and global studies. Ended up dropping the double major to graduate in three years instead of four, but I was full on Mandarin Chinese. So I didn't even take notes about this scholarship. But huh. thanks to Mick Jagger, my dad says, hey, you know, Nick went to the London School of Economics. I said, wait a minute, there's this scholarship. My dad says, go find those notes. You should apply. And after this concert, I went back. I applied. I was one of three Americans that got in. And instead of hanging out as a young 21-year-old kid in, in Beijing and Shanghai, I ended up in London and getting a flyer for a Chinese-themed Shabbat meal uh, with Rabbi Akiva Tatz. Oh, wow. And, you know, Jake with dreadlocks showed up from living in Soho, you know, being paid by the EU to be in grad school. And uh, the second I heard Rabbi Akiva Tatz, that was it. I was on a trajectory. I, I moved to Golders Green a few months later. I cut off my dreadlocks and, and attached them to uh, the sides of my pants to, you know, come out in the four cornered strings. And, and that, was, uh, that was really my trajectory to lock in uh, my, my Jewish approach. And, what, what about uh, so him much, was, so, was so mesmerizing to you? You know, I, I had been in, you know, circles of Hare Krishna's chanting and eating delicious vegan food afterwards. I'd been in uh, Native American drum circles. I'd been in uh, Buddhist sits, but I, I'd never, I'd never felt as real and as comfortable when I sat in the JLE in London hearing Rabbi Tatz talk about free will. It, it hit me in a way that this isn't just spiritual tourism. This is, this is real. The people around me are, are real. This is, this is something I can... I can oddly relate to as foreign and as weird as this is. And I just kept coming up to Golders Green and, and, and a lot of props to the community they've built. There was a great group of internationals and it was fun. It was cool. And I was spiritually nurtured. I, I remember when I made the decision, that's it. I'm, I'm out of here uh, from where I was living in Soho. For those who know London, that's like the, uh, the Greenwich village of, of London. There's also a Soho in Manhattan, not so far away, right. south of Houghton. <laughs> but I was walking down, coming back from a Rabbi Tatz class. This was after the tube closed down. I had to take a night bus back and I'm listening to an MP3, you know, class of Rabbi Tatz. And I'm so spiritually lit from, from this Torah I'm getting. And I'm walking back through uh, this cool Soho part and I see a whole bunch of people outside of a club and they're lining up. People are shivering, you know, girls wearing nothing and shivering and it's cold out, but people are lined up waiting hours and I see the nightclub is called Sin. And I'm like watching these people line up for two hours to get into Sin. And I see another club on the left 
digress. The, no joke. I, I literally remember this moment. And I'm in this cocoon with my earphones on, listening to Rabbi Tatz, having just seen him in person. And I watched two people lining up to digress and to sin. And I said, you know what? If I was a betting man and there were eight horses at the track and one horse is called the sin and digress horse and one horse is called these crazy Jews I was just hanging with in North London and I'm going to have to bet on which horse is going to be around and successful at the end of days or at the end of game, whatever time frame you want. I realized that even though I didn't fully understand everything that the Jews were saying and didn't fully agree or accept. I realized I wanted my money on those horses and not, not on the sin and digress. So that was, that was the moment where I really decided to be Makabel Ol Malchut Shemayim to take on the Torah. Wow. Unforgettable. So did you move right away to Israel? And, and did you get, in, and I know that you're very into mindfulness and, and things like that. Did you get into that right away? Like, how did you sort of then uh, sh- construct your more... My exit, my exit strategy from academic. Yeah. From academic. Yeah. And you're the, more, tr- the truth is... Yeah. The truth is I wanted to get out of this grad program to go to yeshiva. So I finished my master's thesis in London. I turned it in and I wrote a letter like, you know, dear uh, the EU, I don't want to like do my second year in Poland. In fact, I want to go to Israel. It was like, it was like the EU consortium in Leipzig, Germany. So it was like, dear the Germans, please don't force me into Poland against my will. I want to go to Israel to yeshiva. So there's like a little cosmic karma there. Anyway, I, I got the letter back um, from this EU program, which was two years and said, dear Mr. Lehman, you know, you cannot get out of the program. You cannot go to yeshiva or else you have to pay back all the money we gave you and forfeit your master's degree. But instead of Poland, you can go to Vienna. So it, it turned out to be really amazing that instead of going and, you know, I have a fiery personality, instead of jumping right into this intense spiritual process in, in Israel, I think that uh, Hashem had a better plan for me, which was to moderate it. And I, I, I spent a I spent a month in Or Sameach, a yeshiva in Israel, before I moved to Vienna uh, after the summer. And I spent a year in a community, in a tremendous community in Vienna, Austria. I wrote my master's thesis on the Balachuva movement, comparing the Jewish return to religion with the Chinese return to traditional thought at post-Mao. Kind of saw them in context of a global return to religion that's happening. We can talk about that a bit later um, when we get to my current work. But uh, I had had a step in between living in a wonderful European community, finished that program, hopped the flight to uh, Ethiopia, actually travel on a motorcycle for three weeks before going to a tour leadership uh, trip in South Africa with Rabbi Tatz. Rabbi Shmuel Lin was on that as well. Sure. Um, and then I landed in Israel and Yeshiva in 2008, 10 years ago. So, so my path was modulated, which I think was good and healthy. And uh, I spent five, six years in Yeshiva, still planning various... Uh, I forgot to mention I had produced a music festival in California my last year, which still continues to this day, 13 years, called the Chilla Vista. I run on alternative energy, biodiesel solar, as well as zero waste principles. Um, that was a, you know, my kind of my first project in, in my professional trajectory uh, called Chilla Vista. But while I was in Yeshiva, you know, I, I still uh, managed to put out a, uh, a Torah magazine called Inquisitive Imagery. Uh, a film series that won in a film festival called uh, Cruising with the Jews. Uh, we ended up uh, forming a, like a, a jazz hip hop group called the Urban Shtetl Sound System. And uh, all those paths along while I was learning in yeshiva led me up to my uh, present work, uh, which is with uh, Wisdom Tribe, my, my current company, trying to bring a Jewish contribution to the global mindfulness space. So let's talk about that a little bit. Obviously, as you mentioned, mindfulness, something that you... Uh, you've embraced and you've really, uh, you know, doubled down on, I guess. How did you 
come to this concept to create what you have created, this wisdom tribe? What exactly is the wisdom tribe? What are you doing? Uh, and again, where did it come from and, and how did it evolve? So uh, the trajectory and story is very clear. Uh, my, my right-hand man in my Chilla Vista Festival, which was again my last year of college, I, I formed a, a class. There was actually 100 students that got credit for throwing this music festival. It's like College Hacking 101. That's cool. You know, so I formed a class. Two of my, three of my students formed classes. And my right-hand man in this whole thing was a guy named Levi Felix. And uh, the story of Levi is as such. He had... Uh, with me formed this festival we were actually we were actually called in by the chancellor of uc santa barbara and offered full-time jobs to wow. do this music festival it got such good press for the university of california santa barbara which is known as a pretty uh outrageous party school in, in other you regards. can study buzzed right yeah you can study but you can show up in class with your wetsuit you know i i think i skateboard around barefoot for the better part of like a, a semester gorgeous. Uh, so this is santa barbara we do we happen to do something good and you know kind of parting for a cause uh, i guess that was the chilla vista model have a festival but do it consciously so uh he offered us full-time jobs my i was already off to london so i said no levi went to go work for a tech company and uh you know this is the story of a young tech executive, 23 years old, managing a group of 50 people, uh, a really cool early web 2.0 company called CauseCast, which did uh, philanthropy with, with social networking and celebrities. Eventually, uh, Levi uh, was working so hard and just pushing, pushing the, the envelope, as they say, and he collapsed. One day, he collapsed the floor. He was hospitalized, and he had ruptured an internal organ from all the stress of his... Uh, his busy job. And the doctor basically wrote him a prescription to take a vacation. Like, dude, you're, you're going you're gonna to burn yourself out. So he got his employer to pay him two grand a month to travel the world and blog about it. You know, why not? He came to visit. Why not? You know, this is a, you know, employee hacking 101. We we're all about hacking the system. So he ended up in Israel uh, with his girlfriend. Wasn't, didn't, wasn't a good fit for him. Uh, we tried. I tried to bring him into the option of a Rebbe. He ended up getting trampled by like a whole herd of stampeding Hasidim. Time after time, it just it didn't work for him in Israel. So he left. He ended up finding his place on a small island off the coast of Cambodia. Cambodia being a, a, a neighboring country of Thailand. And this island had zero technology. He was living in a tech-free oasis for a year and a half. Wow. Even to like shoot an email, he'd have to take a boat to the mainland. <laughs> and like, you know, he was journaling, spearfishing, meditating, all the good stuff, tapping into real authentic life away from his, you know, four monitors in his high tech office. So lo and behold, Levi arrives back in San Francisco in 2010. And we have entered in a new epoch of world history. Just like that, snap of the fingers. Steve Jobs stands up from stage there at the Moscone Center in San Francisco, and we are in a clearly defined new period of history called the digital age. And, and this whole transition had kind of you know, flown just in a matter of years over the head of Levi, who was in his digital detox island off the coast of Cambodia. And everywhere he goes, he sees people staring at their phones and just completely mindlessly, robotically uh, executing their day-to-day -day life duties. Uh, uh, all mitigated by this new handheld device that is somehow occupying everyone's attention. And Levi saw an opportunity from what he had learned and experienced on this island 
to create a, a little island in, in oasis in paradise for, for people. And he founded a company called the Digital Detox. He started out, uh, I think it was in Northern California, 12 people, Friday to Sunday, 750 bucks, show up, we'll confiscate all your technology, come and bring all your technology, even that old tablet that you don't use anymore, this might have even been pre-tablet, I don't know, bring all your tech and give it to us, we're going to confiscate it from you in a hazmat suit, like a nuclear waste suit, put it in a box, and you are now going to have from Friday to Sunday to completely digital detox. And you know, he sent me like the one pager of this thing in like, I forget, spring 2012 or 11. I thought he was crazy. Like people are going to go for this. They're going to pay money, you know, cause I did Shabbat every week and you know, people, people are feeding me and you know, I, I never got charged 750 bucks for this, but, uh, this was his model and it became huge. Uh, the first time I read about him in the New York times, he was featured in a, in an article called device free drinks. And this article in the times was all about his, 300 person San Francisco event where everybody stands in line out the door, not to sin and to digress, but rather to have a few minutes of uninterrupted real fate, real FaceTime with people that's unmitigated by technology. Right. Uh, you know, I, I ask a lot of people, you know, when I travel, talk about this, who here in the past month has used technology, their phone to avoid an awkward social circumstance. It turns out quite a few people do this. They'll pick up a phone, the conversation's not running, or they don't want to talk to somebody, and they'll pretend to have a call or shoot a text out needlessly. But uh, turns out people are willing to pay and are excited to have an experience without that safety, without that digital refuge. And he created an entire movement, a summer camp for adults, digital detox, tech-free, called Camp Grounded, which has been featured in the New York Times and BBC and Good Morning America and Forbes uh, Vanity Fair. And through Levi, I heard about a group of people, a brave new group of, uh, of young people and older people who are in the tech world, but are really starting to ask the questions about technology's effect on our overall well-being. And this was 2011. Now it's already, um, I think, made its way into common discourse in 2018. But he was really an early adopter, one of the first voices. And I got, uh, uh, I became aware of this whole space uh, through Levi. And I, just as a last uh, addendum to, to sum up this, this story, uh, unfortunately, Levi passed away last year at right. age 33 of brain cancer. So a lot of um, all the work I do really is Ilu Nishmas in honor of the, the great soul, Levi Lemel Ben Yehuda HaKohen, uh, Levi Felix HaKohen, and it should be a great merit for him upstairs. Uh, and it's a great merit for me that I can carry on his, his amazing work. Wow. So what did you do to carry it on? And it sounds like you maybe took it in some new directions. So the first thing I did was I saw Levi was, was speaking at a conference called Wisdom 2.0. And this was a $1,000 ticket conference bringing together founders of Facebook, PayPal, LinkedIn, uh, all the, the tech who's who uh, with mindfulness teachers, teachers like uh, John Kabat-Zinn, uh, teachers like Dan Siegel from UCLA Neuroscientists or Richard David, uh, Davidson, another neuroscientist from the University of Wisconsin, all the who's who in tech, in researching neuroscience of, of, of meditation, and in wellness, all meet at this conference called Wisdom 2.0. And uh, Levi has even a space there called the device-free zone where people come in and, and you can't bring any tech into this, this nice space. So I saw this conference and I saw it was great. And there's so many different forms of wisdom. 
And there's so many Jews, actually. All, almost all the people representing the tech companies, at least the founders, are, are Jewish. And even in the mindfulness world, if you ask the top 10 mindfulness teachers in America, at least uh, seven, if not more of them, uh, are of Jewish heritage if they don't identify uh, as Jews themselves. So I saw, and, and, I, and there was nobody representing Torah wisdom. And I, and I said, wow, you know, 4,000 years, or as Walter in the Big Lebowski says, you know, 3,000 years of, of history from Moses to Sandy Koufax, right? <laughs> I said, you know, we've got to have, have something we can contribute. So I called Levi and I said, hey, man, why don't we do Wisdom Shabbos? And he said, great idea. And we, uh, we booked out actually a yoga studio that my cousin ran called Zazen Wellness, which was a flotation tank and yoga. And we did our first Wisdom Shabbos in San Francisco. I think it was probably 2013 or 14. I showed up not knowing anyone. And I can say now this is our fifth year doing it. Um, and unfortunately, Levi uh, has, has not been around the last two years. That's been in his memory. And I can proudly, confidently say from not knowing whether we're going to get anybody to show up, uh, now we've got uh, repeat attendees, including uh, Mark Zuckerberg's head of learning and development at Facebook, VP of learning and development, Amy Hayes, or uh, Bill Duane, the head of wellness at Google, uh, or Tristan Harris, who uh, is leading this kind of ethical design. He was the one in the Wall Street Journal article that just came out last week. The, the what was it, like the Wild West, uh, people taking on the tech companies, Tristan's, uh, he's really the one leading the cause now for ethical design, again, you know, against Google, Facebook. Tristan comes, who else? Uh, you know, just a really, really great group of people in the tech mindfulness world who show up to experience the one day uh, of the week, every week for the past thousands, you know, thousands, thousands of years that the Jewish people have dedicated to completely being in the present moment, uh, though not on a meditation cushion in a sterile kind of environment, rather with single malt whiskey and sushi and song and prayer and dancing. So it's a very embodied, mindful experience, and I think uh, it's been wildly appreciated. We've been doing this Wisdom Shabbos not just in San Francisco, but in Singapore, Hawaii, um, New York, uh, really across the world, and people are very, very, very uh, excited to be part. Wow, very cool. So obviously this seems to have mushroomed into something more than just an annual uh, Shabbat gathering. So what is what has your organization become in the broader sense, and what occupies your time you know, on a daily basis? Okay, so painting the the system here. So we've got a company called the Wisdom Tribe, which is made up of uh, two elements: the wisdom and the tribe, which is a very Jewish thing. There's there's what you learn, but then there's how you learn it, and the social aspect, uh, the chavrusa learning, the groups, the community is such an integral part of the Jewish experience. So tribe represents a gathering, a conscious gathering of people with intention and with with shared value, shared language. And wisdom represents a dedication to, to, to higher consciousness and thoughts. Uh, so Wisdom Tribe, uh, I frame it as a global lifestyle brand. And if that's too abstract for you, then I frame it as a garden or an ecosystem. <laughs> and within this, within this ecosystem or garden, I've planted several different uh, species of shrubbery and or tree. Um, those, are the, those are the daughter companies, or if you want to get Kabbalistic, the integrated spheres of Wisdom Tribe which are really the business units where we do operations. So, so Wisdom Tribe at the top, a lifestyle brand, building a bridge between ancient Jewish wisdom and the global conversation of movers and shakers, business leaders who are evaluating uh, you know, quality of life in our modern era and, and how we can preserve it. And the, the, the four businesses we operate within this uh, ecosystem or garden 
Um, one of them is a, a personal development program or app that we're just, we just started our pre-launch uh, rollout. It's called TribeWise. Uh, we've built an incredible app that goes through the 10 sphero, the 10 stages of uh, systems development that are present in any system. So starting out with uh, what in Kabbalah is called Keter, or in English we translate as willpower. So willpower to a Chachma, which we call vision, Bina, which we call comprehension, Dat, which we call mindfulness. And we've, we've translated the, the, the 10 stages of development that are posited by uh, the mystical sources in Jewish wisdom into really actionable talking points or, or, or themes that we can explore. And all this through a really great app that we've programmed, and, and this is launching in November. So stay tuned for TribeWise. That is a, a, a product that goes to consumers and is a, a lifestyle app. Uh, by the way, uh, wellness apps are now like the most trending uh, category. iTunes or Calm was named the app of the year, 2017. Headspace, Will, there's, there's tons of them. So it's a growing space, and, and we're really happy to enter that with a, not a product for Jews, but really for the entire world, including Jews, uh, to give ancient wisdom in a really practical, accessible way that, that helps you balance your life. So what would be some That's, examples of how you do that concretely? Oh, um, how we integrate the wisdom or how we do that through the app? Y either one, both, yeah. Um, so like willpower, take willpower. You know, there's an amazing uh, idea in Judaism that we, we have free will that the human is an autonomous agent. And this is especially relevant. I have a new talk about uh, automation and machines, the age of AI, spirituality in the age of AI. So instead of being like uh, on autonomous bots, we, we, we are really autonomous agents to choose. So instead of being autopilot, we, we as humans really have the capacity to flex free will. And we're asking the question where free will comes from and how we can tap into it. Uh, and it, it's really comprised of two parts that, uh, there's, a, there's an old, uh, I think this is from Reb Simcha Bonum of Peshischa, who says that you have to, at every time, walk around with two pieces of paper in your pocket. One says, Ani Afer Ve'efer, which means I am absolutely nothing, dust and ashes. This is from Avraham Avinu, our forefather Abraham. And that's the element of, of willpower, which says, you know what? As much human agency as I have, as, as much as I'm empowered, the truth is, I have no idea what's going to happen in the next minute. Anything could happen. And I might have expectations. I might have desires. I might think that things are going to go away. But in truth, everything is thrown up to, to Hashem, to the higher mystery. And in, in Kabbalah or Hasidus, this is called bittel, completely negating yourself to the great mystery beyond. And the truth is, if we walk around arrogant, like we can control every second of time, space, soul in this world, we're going to really have our heart broken quite a bit. So step one in willpower, <laughs> realize that the world is much greater than any one human. Let go. Um, but step two is very important. From that state of letting go, then drop back into the matrix and know that you are empowered, that we have decisions of consequence, that we are not just the product of cause and effect, but we are autonomous agents that can choose our destiny and choose our path. And not only that, but uh, the stronger we can tap into that inner intrinsic will that we find within ourselves, the more the universe comes to our back to aid us. And and kol uh, anybody who comes to uh, purify themselves, they're helped from above. And the midrash even says that one is appointed a malach, a spiritual energetic force, to help them actualize whatever will they want to be. You want to be a holy person, you'll get assistance to be a holy person. You want to be a wicked uh, cheater, guess what? You're going to have all the doors open for you to be a, a, a ruthless, wicked. Uh, 
businessman, whatever, whatever that is. So um, just on, on that level of willpower, knowing how to dance between that paradox and knowing both of them are true, that we really have no idea and no control. Everything is subsumed in this greater mystery. However, we are empowered in a very, very deep way to make decisions that have consequence, not just for ourselves, but for the people around us and, and generations to come. So that is a, one idea that we're conveying in willpower and we're developing at the end of the content various exercises to help people identify, tap into, and manifest that will. Very interesting. When you speak to you know, these, these heads of uh, major companies or the, the health and wellness representatives, directors, what are they saying about the current trends in digital technology and the interface between the digital world and human living or the impact it's having on daily life. You know, you hear these, so, yeah, it's, I was going to say, you hear the anecdotes sometimes of Mark Zuckerberg or other people like that saying, you know, no smartphone for my child, <laughs> things like that. Right. There seems to be like this backlash on some level. I don't think there's any going back. There's no putting the genie back in the bottle, but there seems to be some kind of um, moderating force out there, perhaps. What are you seeing kind of in the broader world in terms of the trends um, that may be aligning with this notion of, of mindfulness? Sure. Um, so it is a big conversation. And, and you know, it's, it's unique for me to bring this perspective into a, an environment like a yeshiva or a seminary where I speak. And in, in, in the Jewish religious world, we have a, an understanding that technology can be very damaging uh, for, let's just say, the access to the unsavory underbelly of the internet, which in many ways uh, you can look at the numbers uh, and is actually driving a lot of innovation and a lot of the dollars on the internet is from uh, the, the dark underbelly of uh, promiscuous content. But it's nice for me to come in uh, mm -hmm. to speak to young Jewish uh, students or, or anybody and not giving that side, that perspective. You know, they, they hear that a lot, but there is a definitely a, another perspective of checking technology just from, well, I don't even know where to start. Let's just start cognitively a peer-reviewed study published by Microsoft 2015 that human beings lost a third of their attention span in the span of, in the span of a decade from 2002 to 2012 we went from having an attention span of 12 seconds to an attention span of 8 seconds is that all really i would think down to 3 or 4 for <laughs> that me. was 2012 that was pre snapchat <laughs> pre instagram stories come on <laughs> but but the same study cites the fact that a goldfish has an attention span of 9 seconds so whatever framework perspective that is, you know, are we smarter in the digital age? Sure, we have access to an unprecedented plethora of information. We have the world's voluminous library of content and research at our fingertips, literally at our fingertips. But um, if our capacity to, deep, to think deeply has decreased, which is, you know, attention span is long, deep, uh, sustained thought, then we, we're handicapped. Uh, so that's one, incognitively. Let's go to emotions, right? Uh, increased use of technology, correlating in, in various studies, uh, you can see, um, I'm not remembering the citation off the top of my head, but a decrease in or well-being, overall well-being, increase in anxiety, depression, more sleep deprivation. So it seems like uh, there is not a positive effect on, on emotions. Uh, social ability, sure, you know, we have we have apps that can connect us like we are now of, you know, thousands and thousands of miles and time zones. So 7,000 miles, you know, has never been closer, you know, sitting on, the, on this podcast. But, uh, you know, seven inches has never been farther apart. If you don't believe me, just go into the lunchroom of your uh, school, college, workplace, and see how people seven inches apart from each other 
are so siloed out from the mere human presence of, uh, of another inhabitor of this world we share seven inches away. So anyway, I could go on and on, and this is a, you know, an area of deep interest and, and study of mine, but there is quite a, a, if not backlash, but a checking of technology's incursion to our lives, which is nothing new. However, the speed and r rapid change rate is what is new, that the Gutenberg press took 100 years to filter its way into European society. So it was, it was the disruptive technology of its day, 1442, Johann von Gutenberg comes out with the movable type, the printing press, takes about 100 years. And, and now, you know, Instagram in, in three years reaches 25% of the US population in three years. And, you know, the granddaddy of them all, uh, Angry Birds 2, 45 days, uh, 50 million users. So something to think about in terms of scale and rapidness of this change, which is preventing us from developing the tools and institutions and habits that we need to, to counter it. So what are, what are these people, let's say Google or Facebook, what, what are they saying about what should be done or what can be done? So I sat with Bill, Bill Duane, the head of wellness at Google, who was a member of our board. And uh, I told him what a, what a yeshiva day looks like that in Israel, you know, some hundreds of thousands of people spend between 9 a.m. and uh, 1.30 p.m. with their phones off, sitting in hand-to-hand -hand combat, not, uh, not sterilely in the corner and not falling asleep or trading stocks in a large lecture hall, but one-to-one -one engaged learning in immersive texts that are based on ethical and spiritual and moral principles. And we do this for a sustained time of three hours. And he said, wow, like we've been trying to come up with similar programs at Google to like really refine and keep our engineers uh, sharpened in their attention spans. So between, uh, you know, the Jewish practice of Shabbat and, uh, and learning Torah, having a, a dedicated time to put the phone away and engage in rigorous uh, mental exercise, uh, I think, I think we've got uh, some very interesting solutions for this issue, but uh, people are tackling it in, in various ways. Um, and actually maybe it's a good lead into to the second business of Wisdom Tribe um, after TribeWise, which is Wisdom at Work. And Wisdom at Work is our B2B um, business to business corporate training program where we come into companies and we provide day long trainings or uh, courses that span uh, over, over several weeks in mindfulness and emotional intelligence. And there, there is a, an existing toolkit um, adopted by many of the, the, the leaders, thought leaders and, and business leaders, finance leaders, uh, financial leaders of, of present day society. Uh, and, and in that toolkit is my, our mindfulness practices or practices that help uh, refine and expand one's emotional intelligence. And it turns out that uh, this wide toolkit of practices really builds better workplaces that employees are happier, teams run with uh, less friction between them, people are more motivated to show up and, and do their job, they feel more aligned in their personal professional uh, balance. So uh, Wisdom Tribe provides this training uh, here in Israel, uh, in Asia, in, in North America. I just came back last week from a, a, a full day training for, for, for a company in New York. And uh, I think more and more uh, any company, whatever, no matter what industry you're in, are realizing that there, there exists a different toolkit to thrive in this, in this 21st century than, than in, the, in the 20th century, that we need new tools, the disruption is deep and is unsettling, and we need to figure out how we can, uh, we can preserve that quality of life and preserve that business productivity or agility or whatever, whatever you're optimizing for. And it turns out that this type of wisdom can be really effective. So we've got a, a, whole, a whole program um, for, for businesses in Wisdom at Work, 
and uh, we're not mm -hmm. the first ones to the fray. Uh, one of our partners, uh, Google, uh, Google Search Inside Yourself, is uh, probably one of, one of the greatest examples. Google developed an in-house, uh, an in-house mindfulness and emotional intelligence program. It was the most successful oversold program at Google for like three years of six month waiting list. And they eventually formed it into its own institute and started offering it outside of Google. And uh, Wisdom Tribe has brought that to Israel um, two years in a row in a partnership with Wix, which is a, a great company here in Israel. So this is a discourse that, that people are calling for. Um, there's many people showing up, but I think uh, Wisdom at Work, we've got a unique take on that, both drawing off of our experience with uh, the Google Search Inside Yourselves and LinkedIn Conscious Business Academy, who we've got a relationship with, uh, and then injecting in our own unique wisdom that we get from the Torah. Uh, one, one quick idea, um, I think a unique value added, is the idea of conscious communication. Uh, for those who understand Torah concepts, Lashon Hara, speaking illy of others. And it's not about not telling lies in the workplace. Lies aren't the, the big deal. It's about the true things that you tell and the way you pervert the truth in order to disparage somebody. And I think that nothing is nothing's more damaging to an organization than when the psychological safety is at threat, than when people feel that they're, they're on eggshells, they're not free to, to, to speak their mind in meetings because somebody's going to say something bad or snicker behind their back. And if you can build a culture where the laws of Lashon Hara are respected in the Jewish context or in a wisdom at work, when, conscious, when there's a value of conscious communication and being able to create a culture where people are, are being truthful, real, direct in their communication critiques, but not kind of vindictive, then you've created a, a really healthy workplace where, where people can get the job done that they need to get done. Yaakov, in wrapping up, tell us what's next for you, for Wisdom Tribe. I know the app is coming out. What's next for you other than that? Or maybe that is the big... So, so that is... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll finish. Uh, I'll answer that question after my, I paint the, the, the... I don't want to neglect the garden. There's one more uh, business we have called Tribe Creative, which in one sentence is able to provide creative services in branding, design, videos, social media marketing, uh, competencies that we've developed very strong in-house. And we work with like-minded companies or organizations to help them amplify their story uh, through these means. So we have a creative agency on top of that. That's the Wisdom Tribe ecosystem. There's other things happening as well. But, uh, you know, I, I, I really uh, am, am, am hoping this is the year. You know, thankfully, I've been able to draw together a team We've got 11 people full-time here in Israel, wow. another you know, 10 people uh, part-time contracted here and there. I really feel that, uh, I say with my, my co-founder, Sur, who's in, in the room here listening to us, we say all the time, you know, if we were only producing paper clips, but with this team and this culture and these values, dayenu, you know, we could be doing completely meaning, quote-unquote meaningless work, but to be able to embody the values and to be able to scale that is really exciting. And I, and I really hope that in the next few years, we're going to see Wisdom Tribe branches that will be able to offer creative services, personal development, corporate training. Uh, we'll see offices pop up in, in LA, San Francisco, New York, Miami, London, Shanghai, Singapore. Uh, I really don't think this is uh, outside the realm in five years. Hopefully it'll be much more and beyond than that. But uh, I'm, what excites me the most is to draw together a team of people with a vision, a shared group, a shared set of values, and coming together humbly to embark on a journey where we don't know where it's going to be. Nobody's the guru and has the exact map. We're learning as we go along. But I think that healthy bit of, uh, of, of mystery and achtus, that gathering together for a good cause, is an incredible feeling for me, and I know it is for my team. 
and I hope we'll be able to scale and replicate that in, in many places in, in the time to come. Where can people find you online and, and learn more about Wisdom Tribe? Check out wisdomtribe.global or tribewise.global or wisdomatwork.global or tribecreative.agency uh, if you're into creative services on the tribe creative side. And uh, yeah, if you can do me a favor and just smile when you're walking down the street. Next person you see, you can have an infectious effect in the world by just greeting the world and leaving people and places in a better state than you found them. So as my, my last sign off, if you're walking this, the next person you see, smile, leave them with a good feeling, and hopefully that will be infectious and rub off on their workplace, on their family, and on their friends. Amazing. Yaakov, Jake, Lehman. By the <laughs> way, J Jake Lehman was a, is a wonderful basketball player, graduated recently from Maryland, now in the NBA. You can ask your brother about him. But, oh, I got to ask him, Jake yeah, Lehman. Yeah. That was my name for, uh, for 20 years. Yeah, he spells he it differently, but we'll give you credit anyway. Um, <laughs> but in any event, Jake, Yaakov Lehman, thank you so much for sharing your time, your very unique insights, and your incredible creative passion. Thank you for joining Wonderful. Us. It's been a pleasure. Ciao. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.